We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. Mm. So would, would it be accurate to say then for somebody who first comes upon this literature and starts, first starts reading into it, that they can expect to find these multiple voices, they will hear stories, they will hear something different than just purely an academic strain of, of like, you know, if I pick up a philosophy book, it could be so dry, it could be so deadening, um, but that might not be the case here. Right? We, we might get different stories. We might. We might. There is no one way to pull this off. Right. That's what I was thinking. I, I, know, I have colleagues who um, don't tell stories. They don't come from the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come from other areas of the country where other things are um, entree into how to think. I'm reminded of um, a PhD student who's at Princeton now, but did her master's work with us at Vanderbilt. And she was from New York. And she um, came into my office one day and said, you know, a lot of the womanist stuff is Southern. And I thought about it for a minute and I sort of did a tick, tick, tick. And realized, yeah, a lot of the early work done by um, womanist folk we're Southerners, and most of us ordained. Um, and she said, that, "I'm from I'm from the hood in New York. This stuff just does the examples just don't work for me." I said, "That's your that's your that's your dissertation. You've got to approach this stuff from where you sit. That gives you." the authority to speak. You don't do mine and I don't do yours, but what we can learn if we're paying attention is something we didn't know from each other. And that moment of, oh, yeah. It was sort of uh, not unlike the time I was co-teaching a course with a historian in Brazil, in um, Salvador, in the state of Bahia. And we were talking about slavery. And it struck both of us almost at the same time. I think she was a few beats ahead of me. The reason slavery looks so different in Brazil than it did in the US was because we had the North. Black folk had a place to flee to that was relatively safe, although we know slave catchers would come. But in Brazil, what they had were Columbos, which were under constant assault by slave catchers trying to not only destroy the community, but drag folk back into slavery. That produced some very different ways of thinking about freedom. 
So it's no listening to each other and hearing what's going on. And it may not be a story story. It could be pretty dry, actually. Um, but it's what, you, what you're learning. What is somebody seeing um, that will be different than what I'm up to? Yeah, that in and of itself right there suggests a very deep deep and different methodology that I think is so essentially important because allowing that conversation as opposed to allowing the methodology dictate how you're going to tell, you allow the experience and the, and the situation of the person where they're seated, where they're seated to have mm-hmm. the um, foray in and to kind of dictate the terms of how they're going to express. That That seems to me very important shift uh, that uh, I'm so glad to hear of. And I think people who've never discovered this, I think would be happy to hear of as well. You know, another thing we talk about a lot is uh, toxic silence and the silencing and the oppression of people. And one thing about womanist thought is that because of this honoring of intersections and this elevation of intersections and, and even it reflecting just the the goal for the survival of all people. It, it strikes me as a a methodology or a thought of just ridding our world of these toxic silences, of letting these voices be elevated, it, you know, and also a place of kind of infinite possibility because, like you're saying, there's just so many different people. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you might be willing to share a story of um, a time where you've maybe encountered toxic silence in your own life or a time where you've seen the flip side, the undercurrent of silences. You mentioned it being a warning earlier in the conversation, mm-hmm. um, how it can be a warning. Um, I wonder if you have any, any other thoughts on that. I think one of, the, one of the things that comes to mind and one of the times that comes to mind around a silence that, that kills. Happens when um, folk give up. They've tried and tried and tried and tried and they have no more breath in them and no more energy. I'm reminded of something uh, James Cone said to me once when I was trying to figure out why I still had hope after working on my book on black healthcare and healing and all just black health is just terrible. And it hadn't changed much. And, and Jim looked at me and said, you have to have hope. You must have hope because the only alternative is despair. And then they've won. This is the despair, the silence. When folk no longer believe it's worth speaking or acting, And in the most extreme forms, even getting getting up and walking out the door because there is no hope. They have no hope left. And the kind of silence that is the creature of um, despair kills and maims, I think. And it's hard to get folk back to hope once they go there. 
This is why I have uh, continue to have hope is um, people weren't silent this time when Floyd was literally lynched in front of us. I would not have counted on people responding the way that we have responded as a nation. Something happened. I don't know if it's because not only did he say, I can't breathe, but he called for his mother. I don't know what it was, but it was just different. And the level of tolerance for the kinds of gross inequities we have in our, in our country, it didn't go completely away. You know, this is not a Hollywood movie. We are not watching or hearing the music swell up at the end. Um, but it is a sense of possibility. And that's where the loud comes back. What currently gives you hope? You know, every, every, um, there are two times. The opening of school, when I greet the, begin, the entering class, and they run the gamut from scared beyond all knowing and being to I got this, and then everything in the middle. And I see possibilities and wonder, what will we be with you and for you? What will you do here to help us be? The moniker of, of Vanderbilt Dib School is the school of the prophets. How will we be the school of the prophets? Because you've walked these halls. The second time is at commencement where I uh, hand everybody their uh, diploma, theoretically, and shake their hand. And the photographer takes the picture. Um, and some hug. And some are <laughs> like, they're still scared of me. <laughs> the end, it's like, look, this is like, I don't bite. <laughs> but, and when I, um, we do that, and then there's a charge from the graduating class to each other. And then there's a charge from me. And I get to look at them one last time. And everybody's happy. Parents and family members have been yelling and shouting as they come because we don't do dignified. We do happy at our graduation, at our diploma ceremony at least. You know, it's just a joyous time. And I think, okay, we've got another generation out there that just might make a difference. I'd like to um, share just a little bit about the story of this podcast uh, with you, Emily, and then ask a question in response to that. You know, I think uh, I'll only speak for myself, but um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd when it comes to things related to silence and monasticism and kind of the contemplative tradition. And uh, Cassidy was involved in producing a movie called In Pursuit of Silence. And, you know, Kevin was working on academic work related to, to Buddhism and Christian interfaith dialogue. So we all come at it from kind of this perspective. And we've been doing this podcast for almost three years now. Um, and for me especially, the podcast has been a tremendous conversation, a long conversation about 
how silence manifests in so many different ways in people's lives. And one of the things that I have so appreciated from a number of guests now has been um, looking at the, as, as you mentioned it early in this conversation, the relationship between silence and aggression or the, the kind of silence that actually seeks to silence, you know, with the, the, which is what we call toxic silence. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. And so I guess my question to you as somebody who works in a faith context and knowing that there are these different kind of colors of silence or flavors of silence or, or hues, I don't know what the right metaphor is here, forgive me, tones of silence. How do we discern? How do we, how do we meet silence that gives life and silence that is linked to aggression? And how do we tell the difference? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think one of the things that's important for me at least is to just stop. I am so busy so much of the time. I mean, I can't even hear myself think, let alone hear what God might be trying to get through. But to stop. Spend Find a place in the day, and I think this is best done um, every day. Find a place in the day, however short or long, where you stop. I actually begin my day with a stop. Um, As soon as I'm awake and done all those things you need to do to get yourself awake, I spend about half an hour to an hour, depending on when I wake up, just stop it. I don't check my email. I don't look to see what texts have come in. What I'm trying to do is hear and then listen. And that's become more and more important for me the older I get. Because it's so easy to get busy and to think that that's doing the work of God when all it is is being busy. And if God sneaks in, it's only... Because God snuck in, not because I helped bring God into the moment. That kind of generative silence, it's one of those things you know it and then you feel it and see it and think it and hear it and feel it. Because there's no other complexity of things that happen uh, to mind, body, and spirit that is like that kind of silence. The, The kind of... Um, dangerous silence, the toxic silence, for me, has a physical place. It's usually right in the center of my chest. 
and it's not a warm and fuzzy kumbaya. It's like, get the heck out of here. This is not for you. This is not right. In other words, it's paying attention to what our senses are telling us about the world around us and not relying on manufactured things that are supposed to gauge what we do. For the summer, I haven't put it back on, but I take my uh, eye wash off every summer because I don't want to be driven by what I do when I have that watch off. I'm checking for email. I'm still a little tentative about answering the phone with it, but I will do it in a pinch. I mean, stop, stop, just move that stuff away. It sounds like to me, the way you're describing this is a deep embodiment, a kind of embodiment that is on one level um, affirming and like you said, it, it allows you to stop, be still, and to hear. And then the other kind of embodiment where you, you're trusting your instincts and your senses and you're realizing danger. And so really you're talking about a dialing into a deep embodied sense of the world. Yes. I like the way you, you phrase it. So thank you. I'm, I'm struck by the, your writing and every time I've heard one of your lectures, you seem to be speaking from that meeting place that you're talking about, those hours in the morning. You're speaking from like a, a stillness and um, yeah, just incredibly here, present and alive and yet also this settled, settled sense of presence. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And I've certainly felt that today too. And just as we close up today, I'm wondering if there's any quote or poem or song or even image that comes to mind that you might want to kind of leave our conversation with. I think uh, what just came to mind was Sonia Sanchez's haiku. Let's see if I can get it right. If I had known then what I know now, I would have picked my own cotton. The other one that comes to mind is that beautiful passage in, um, it's the signature essay for In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, that essay, where she talks and ends it with talking about her mother in her garden. And I don't have it memorized, but you can find it easily. It's only when my mother is in her garden that she is brilliant, something like that. And it goes on. A third is one of um, something I use a lot, and I may have used it at CTS. I'm not sure. It's a soliloquy from um, Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash, a movie. Um, about a South Carolina Sea Island family leaving the island and moving to New York um, at the turn of the, into the uh, 20th century. And it's spoken by one of the protagonists, the character Eula, who is pregnant. And there is 
uh, great mystery about who this child is because she was raped by a white man and her husband, Eli, tries to get her to tell him who he was and she won't do it because she knows full well he'll get himself killed. The story is told by the unborn child of this family. And it's only the audience who knows that the child is Eli and Eulis. And another character comes back to the island, Yellow Mary, who had also been raped, but her husband left her and she turned to the oldest profession. And so the women, many of the, most of the women look down on her, but she'd come back to the island to heal and to stay. And near the end of the film, Eula, they're all on, the, on a beach. They're having a big meal to send the family off. And the women are nitpicking at, at um, Yellow Mary is the name of the character. And Eula, who's suffering from morning sickness, is throwing up and telling them to hush. Hush. And then she says, there's going to be all kinds of roads in life to take. Let's not be afraid to take them because we deserve them. We're all good women. Do you know who you are and what you have become? You're the daughters of those old dusty things Nana carries in her tin can. We carry too many scars from the past. Our mother's scars, our sister's scars, our daughter's scars, thick, hard, ugly scars, so that no one can ever pass through to hurt us again. Let's live our lives without living in the folds of old wounds. Well, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Amen. Thank you for having me. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website, at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.